Good morning. Um, I just want you to know that it is such a privilege to be sharing and learning with you as we walk through the life of Jacob and as we highlight today in uh, the book of Genesis 35, not Genesis 34. For those that have sensitive ears, this is going to be, it's going to be all right. It's going to be PG today, rated PG, so we're good. <clears throat> you know, the Kendricks brothers, they have released a new film called War Room. And one of them, uh, Alex Kendrick, is, is even in the movie, I believe. And is doing wonderfully well at the box office. Over the past couple weekends, I understand, the two weekends ago, it was like second to Compton Crew, the movie about NWA. It's the latest in their line of movies, like Fireproof and Facing the Giants and Courageous. And all of them tend to follow a pattern. I haven't seen War Room yet, but I plan to with my family. But I'm just going to guess that it too follows the pattern of the previous movies. They usually go like this. The character finally turns and surrenders to Jesus after enduring hardships or trials and often rising to a climax with a profound sermon or a speech by a pastor or a coach. The music swells. Sometimes there's a video montage review of the events of the movie. It would probably climax as, um, with, with, this, with this rousing speech. The motions flow, fade to black, credits roll, hallelujah. If my life were made into a Kendrick's movie, it would probably climax as I was walking down the aisle of an after-school Bible club as a seven-year-old while the old rugged cross played in his old Kimball organ in the background. I'd kneel in prayer, the music would swell, in tears I'd walk to the car and tell my mom I accepted Christ as my Savior. True story. And in tears, she would, she would hug me and maybe with a little artistic flair, they'd fast forward years uh, later, 12 years later, and I'm standing in front of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And the newly appointed director, CJ, with a head full of hair, and a little slimmer, maybe, you know, before his you know, pre-Uber uh, fitness routine. He introduces me as the large group coordinator. I was the large group coordinator for university. Actually, it wasn't CJ. I took a little artistic license there. He, uh, he was probably in junior high class uh, workshop uh, <laughs> making bottle openers or something. Or something. <clears throat> But he introduced me, the music would swell, a rousing speech I give as a large coordinator, credits roll, fade to black, the other way around, hallelujah. But you know, my, my life from that point on, um, from the point of seven years old on, has been nothing but an up and down and a mesh of confusion and doubt and victories and lows and highs. It's been all over the place, disappointment, struggles with sin. When I read the life of Jacob, Jacob, I am not reminded of a Kendrick's Brothers movie. And unless they went through some serious screenwriting gymnastics, I think it would be very difficult for them to take the Bible's narrative of Jacob and put it into their movie template. This is not to disparage them. I'm just saying they have a template. I don't think it would fit. But it is exactly the complexity of Jacob's story which hits many notes in this Genesis 35 passage that makes the, the Bible so reflective of the reality of real life, of our life, which are very nuanced, complex, and generally don't end in climatic heroic endings. We know that as sweet as the moment is when we give our life to Christ, it is really only the beginning of our pilgrimage. 
the process of becoming more and more in Christ's image rather than our old dead self. Usually it's uh, the process of becoming more and more like Christ. It's a sanctification process. He wants to transform us inside and out through adversity, sorrows, joys, thrills, times of confusion, to be his people in his kingdom. We oscillate between self-reliance when the good times happen, right? That makes, that makes us forgetful of the eternal, and the other hand, reverent gratitude for the goodness of the world, coupled with awe of God. This is the story of a pilgrim on life's journey, dealing with the repercussions of his own failures, his own sin. But even more important, it's a story about our God. The book of Genesis is largely about God establishing his kingdom through his covenant people. This fits into the narrative throughout the Bible of God being the initiator. From Genesis throughout all of Scripture, we see God time and again establishing and initiating a relationship with his people, with his creation. Jacob was in checkmate, right? We learned last week from Aubrey's sermon. He was toxic in the land, and he and all those they were passing through knew it. He didn't have much left in his bag of tricks. He knew that as strangers with very different ways of doing things, like their unpolytheistic worship practices, the cutlery ceremony, he knew he was in trouble with the Canaanites, and they all had all the motivation in the world to wipe his little band of sheep herders out. And, to, and, and go to war with them. God said to Jacob, initiating, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So, here, again, God is taking the initiative to affect his plan through adversities, famine, barrenness, enemies, sinful patriarchs, dysfunctional families, incestual perverts like his sons, Dishonoring sons to their fathers, nervous, nelly, conniving mothers, like his mother and his wife. Through these adversities, he was perfecting his people. The failures of Jacob somehow, somehow, were becoming stepping stones in his faith and their faith. So how did Joseph, Jacob's son, say it to his brothers at the end of Genesis? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So what was one of God's purposes in this plan that he initiated with Jacob? You know, the plan to complete what he'd already told him to do, go to Bethel. Remember, he had stopped at Shechem before arriving at Bethel, about the distance between here and Elkton, I'd say. God's plan was to worship him, to worship himself. Fast forward to Moses in Egypt. What did God initiate and tell Moses to do and in turn tell Pharaoh and his people? Let my people go so that they may worship me. God's initiative was to give Jacob and his clan the freedom to walk through the land of Canaan, to Bethel for the ability to give him glory. What does David say in the 23rd Psalm? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come from it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of who? My enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. 
praise, worship. And Jesus, the great initiator, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And through the gates of hell, he has conquered death, leading us, redeeming us in the midst of our brokenness and sin. So God initiates a relationship. God also initiates by reminding us of his promises and where we have come from and where we are going. In verse 10, God reminds Jacob of who he has made him to be. Israel, not Jacob. He reminds him of the promises given to his father and grandfather, Abraham, in verses 11 through 13. We have a tendency of shutting down, not seeing clearly. The world closes in. We forget that we can even do anything. When Katrina, my wife, uh, was in grad school, she was writing papers. And I'd sometimes find her as I'd walk into the office just weeping over the keyboard. I can't do these papers. I'm a horrible writer. Why am I in grad school? Why did I even come? What am I doing? I'd take her back from the, talk her back from the ledge. And I'd say, do you remember where you were last week? At the same time, roughly, same place? What you were doing? Weeping as you wrote another paper? Yeah. What'd you get on that paper? An A minus. <laughs> Do you remember about a month ago when you were doing the same thing? Crying sessions, the whole nine yards? What did you get? An A, but. <clears throat> I say this not to say that God will give us A's if we remember Him and look to Him, <clears throat> but that we are forgetful people in general, and we are particularly good at forgetting His promises and His, and his fulfilled promises. It is in remembering God's promises and who He is that we realize He is sufficient for all our fears, anxieties, and challenges. What did God tell Moses at the burning bush when Moses was questioning whether he was qualified for the job? Who am I? He said. And God said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Peter was sinking in the water because he was looking at the wind and the waves, and Jesus said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? We need to remind ourselves constantly of he who called himself the I am instead of looking at the waves and the wind, right? Here's an exercise for your next small group. What are the promises that God has fulfilled over the centuries in your life, in our lives? List them. Be intentional. It's one of the reasons we say some of the same creeds and confessions every week to remember because we so easily forget. So God initiates relationships. He initiates by reminding us and he initiates by by preparing and providing a way forward through sorrow, through the land, through more family dysfunction, through famines. Okay, let's look at the comparison contrast here. Genesis 3430. It's going to be PG. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. What does 35.5 say? A terror fell from God, from God fell upon the cities that were around them. What's happened to Jacob's fear? The terror and fear has been displaced. 
How did it happen? Did Jacob and his sons get well organized and sharpen the swords and invent sophisticated catapults and crossbows and the Swiss family Robinson defense mechanism or something? He, he, no, it was God preparing a way for them. How has God prepared a way for us? Okay, let me give me some, some little reminders. First, who could have imagined the humble carpenter man with the backwoods Nazarene accent? Who would be the Messiah and provide a way? The way. Who could have imagined that the Bible would be preserved by those Celtic monks on the remote corner of the Roman Empire in Ireland? Who could have imagined that the African diocese, like the Rwandan and Nigerian diocese, would have provided a way forward for the Anglicans in America? You do know that we are under the Rwandan diocese, right? Who could have imagined that the ragtag huddled group of people meeting in the adult daycare center down towards Port Republic would within five years go from the Spears living room as a church to what we see today in this beautiful renovated auto parts building. Who could have imagined? And a sister plant church in Elkton. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of when the walls feel like they are caving in, and make no mistake about it, Right group, there, there were, we felt the walls were caving in sometimes. And we've seen no way out. Remember who God is. Remember he has already prepared a way for us and that our good shepherd reigns at the right hand of God. So we see God as the initiator, but what is Jacob like as the responder? Well, we see him telling his family to gather up the idols, idols probably, Obtained in the looting of Shechem, and maybe even as far back as Rachel. Remember that story? She was sitting on that camel bag or whatever, and she had idols from Laban's, her father's house. So he gathers up the idols and the earrings, which in that day the earrings could have been used to show who they were worshiping, kind of like our concert t shirts or something. And he buried them under the terebinth tree which was associated with Abraham. But remember also, trees and their locations were also used often by the Canaanites for their religious practices. So Jacob was doing this in and amongst the very sacred places of the surrounding religions. Then he and his family go through a purification ceremony and followed by putting on a change of clothes. And there are three aspects to this whole scenario that just absolutely fascinate me. One, his response was immediate and concrete. Now to us, it's a little bizarre to hear that this hallowed patriarch, Jacob, who has experienced one fulfilled promise after another and dramatic experiences, you know, the, seeing the ladder coming up and down from heaven to earth, <clears throat> all those things, his hip was touched by God. This guy who's experienced all of this from God, <clears throat> this is the guy that's lugging around idols. But aren't we all like that? You know, there's a verse from Hosea 7-9 that says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. It's kind of a terrifying verse. We've all seen the blind spots in others' lives. It's so hard to see them in our own, isn't it? The blind spots of our lives, or the shadow side, as Arby likes to say, are there and are at work, affecting, distorting, distracting, and shaping our loves and our relationships with him who loves us most. 
Keller in his book, um, Prayer, which I'm enjoying right now. It's a wonderful book. Um, He cites how Augustine talked about reordering our lives in his work confession. Excuse me, reordering our loves. He saw that living well depended on the reordering of our loves. St. Jose Maria Escriva says, There is no greater tragedy for man than the, the disillusionment he suffers when he has falsified his hope by placing it in something other than the love that satisfies. So what I love so much about Jacob's response was that he took care of the problem. Problem identified. Action taken. Idols collected in a bag. Buried. Boom. Get it. Got it. Granger, for the ones who get it done. He did it. You know that commercial? You heard of me? I pause here for a moment, and I'm going to offer some practical uh, advice and application. So the obvious question is, you know, what are the idols and blind spots in your life? But for our day, I think the most accurate question would be, what are the distractions in your life that are causing this disorder of our loves, of our primary love? The no-brainer answer is technology, right? Maybe hobbies, maybe following sports, Redskins and Steelers, or outdoor activities, adventures, stuff like that. But the hard question is, what are you going to do about them? And what are you going to do about them today, not in the abstract? How are you going to be Jacob in this respect and take concrete action? So Aaron Cook, he mentioned a couple years ago, or a couple months ago, excuse me, a quote from the former pastor of Christ the King, Jeff Gwynn. And he used to always say, architecture always wins. Right. The architecture by design of Facebook, it's very design, it is to distract. It is. I mean, we all know that, right? You get the little red thing telling you at the top that you have a message or a like and you want to stop mid-sentence and whatever you're doing and what oh, oh, I wonder how many people have liked me and oh I wonder who's commented this time. And it's just that's just design and it works. Our minds are turning into what the author of Addicted to Distraction calls monkey minds. Like a monkey, our minds are distracted by every passing butterfly. I put it to my children this way using a shoebox illustration, like one of those, you know, you do in elementary school, a book report or something. I said, okay, the shoebox is like an auditorium, and you're going to see and hear your favorite comedian. I don't know, Bob Hope or you know, uh, Gaff- Jim Gaffigan or something like that. And you arrive in the auditorium, and on one wall, there's this huge, large green TV. And on that is a constantly looping commercial from Victoria's Secret and Chippendale Dancers or something. And on the other wall, there's this large screen TV, and it's looping images and video of your life and your friends' lives. But then you go to sit down, and the seats, they're all in completely weird, different directions. And then you go to look and, and try to hear and listen to them, and there's a pillar right in front of you. And you're going back and forth and back and forth, trying to, trying to listen. And then the audio is horrible, and you can't understand it. By the end of the, talk, by the, end of the concert performance, maybe 35% of it you've caught. And it's a miserable experience. If you have the distractions of these technologies as a centerpiece of your life, you will be distracted. You will see these moments and times where in the past you may have paused to meditate on the Word or get on your knees before crawling into bed or give your loved ones a hug or whatever. You may see those moments dissipate into the ether 
Because you took 10 minutes staring up at your phone, laying on your back before you went to sleep to find out the latest score, the weather tomorrow, the whatever, the weather, whatever. Now, I am not a Luddite. Look, I have a smartphone in my hand. I have jawbone here. The technology is the core of my my work, videography. It's what I do. But what I'm saying is you need to physically reorder and redesign your life or the distraction machines will win from dawn to dusk. Dusk to dawn and sapping your time and energy because that is what they were designed to do. How are we going to set up the architecture of our life in a way that disallows them to continue their rule over our mind and energies? And most importantly, detracting us from our time with the living God. How will we set up the architecture of our life to counter our addiction to distraction? We need to put the idols in a bag, go out to the tree, bury them, wash, change your clothes. That's concrete. Do it. So after showing this shoebox illustration of my family, I said, what architecture are we going to change in our lives as a family? Because we've got a problem. We need to reorder our loves. Something's got to give. I was so proud of my son, Luther. He said, why don't we, like, set up a, you know, like a, a phone station, charging station in the kitchen. And before we go to bed, just everyone dock it there. So that there's no temptation in going in the rooms. We just won't have it in our rooms anymore. Before you go to bed, it goes there. Just a little tweak like that. It was a great idea. It was a hard idea for me. But it worked. My daughter, Eva, she started recognizing something. She discovered that when she put that aside or put, you know, watching videos or something right before she went to bed and had devotions and prayer time, She started having fewer and fewer nightmares. They started dissipating. She was having some issues with that. So are you struggling with the things that you're watching on the internet, guys? Are you going to hold out the false hope that you'll be strong the entire year and not go to those websites? Well, that leads to the next immediate response of Jacob. He replaces the distraction of the idols by putting on different garments. Often throughout Christian history, putting on new white clothing has been symbolized of putting on Christ. Genesis 3.27 says, For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 13.14, Don't participate in orgies and drunkenness, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision in the flesh to gratify its desires. It's not just about taking the idols of our life and putting on Christ. It's not just about putting on, taking the idols out of our life, but putting on Christ. Not just to deny ourselves, but to seek Christ. And how do we do that? Are we going to say, I'm going to resist and not be distracted. I'm going to try so hard. That's to me sounding a bit more pharisaical. Where we're just trying to be good citizens, walk into the line. Rather, I believe our energies need to be pointed in the direction of prayer. And Aubrey, in the past few weeks, has led us in some excellent advice in, in that. And you sh- I would commend you to listen to those sermons about it. Soul-reorienting prayer is where God gives us so many of the unimaginable things He has for us. It's where we finally treat God as God. Prayer is not the time where we merely see a gift way to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God Himself, to take hold of Him, putting on His righteousness. Jacob's response, the second one was not just immediate and concrete, but it was communal, community. 
It was in community. He didn't just say, well, now I'm going to go to my tent and set a good example for everybody and hope everyone follows suit. It was a family affair, all in. All in for week one. It was a type of group response he needed to take with his sons before their cockamamie plan to, to, to punish Shechem. It was definitive with the everybody in and they gave him their idols and they purified themselves. So you're trying to muscle through on your own something that really should be shouldered with at least another person, maybe more. Well, students, in your IV Bible study, here's a suggestion. Hold each other accountable. Set up the password accountability thing with those filters or whatever. Start it now. Start it this week, your first study. We needn't be nosy neds into people's business, but I think we need to be more transparent and more strategic together. Pray together, yes, but at times to strategize together, brainstorming the architectural designs in your life that need to be changed to reorder your loves. I would say, too, there are prayer warriors in this, in this church. Every Sunday, people like Fran, Anita Cooper, Macy, Janelle, there's a whole bunch of them that go right out there. And the design of the service is such that it's just awesome. While we're all milling around and we're coming up and celebrating the table, right? You could just slip out the beginning, middle, or end over right over there and pray. Pray with these warriors. So I guess my question is, is this the Sunday? Is this the day that you put the idols in the bag, that you bury them? Wash and put on the righteousness of Christ. This is a Sunday that you are going to truly surrender your life to Christ and step out. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's the NIV version. I love it. Are we going to have the courage of Jacob to identify and bury them? You see, the weight of glory then will be your life. A fresh work of God in your life. Not a weightless, worthless, nothingness thing. But God wants more than just working his blessing in your life, in Jacob's life. He wants Jacob. He wants you. He had to give you and me. He had to have you and me. Excuse me. God gave up everything to get you. Will you give it all up to have him? Will you give up worthlessness to have the only one that is worth, worth it? So finally, Jacob's response was through the school of sorrow. His response was communal and community. His response was immediate and concrete and through the school of sorrow. Right about here, the story would be where the Kendricks brothers might have Jacob and clan building an altar. And Jacob giving a rousing speech. Like, you know, this nomadic music, Middle East music, swelling and emotions riding, fade to black, credits rolling. Hallelujah, right? Jim Elliott, the missionary who uh, died trying to reach the uh, Waodani, I think, in Ecuador. He said, it takes the whole of your life to give the whole of your life to God. The story moves to the sad report of the death of Deborah and then the worst of all, his beloved Rachel. The one he fell madly in love with at first sight and became super Jacob and he rolled that big stone away. The one he first laid eyes on when? After the first encounter at Bethel. The one that, was, that he loved and finally had Joseph and Benjamin who were his, his, his beloved children. Now again he's separated by her in death and childbirth after Bethel. And there... Jacob is cradling his newborn son, and next to him is the cold body of his wife, 
whom he loved more than anything and anyone, his one true love. How tempting it would have been to honor the dying wish of his wife, but instead of calling his newborn son of my sorrow, as what she designated, he called him son of my right hand or blessing. And then he's addressed as Israel. Here, you see this, I think, for the first time. He's being who God really wants him to be now. But, as an interesting side note, these two names, Ben-Oni and Ben-Chamin, Benjamin, reflect these two states of how Jesus was addressed. The God we place our trust in gave the son of his right hand to become the son of sorrow on the cross. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim Hallelujah. What a savior. But when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. Because he is Benjamin, son of my right hand, reigning at the right hand of God. From here, the prominence of Jacob recedes, and we see more in the school of sorrow and pain with some of the most painful kinds of sorrows, unfaithful, rebellious children. His father Isaac dies, and then his oldest son Reuben brings more grief on his head, and we strangely see Jacob returning to his passive ways of leading his family. Reuben not only sleeps with the co-wife of his father, Bilhah, an immoral, repugnant act, but by doing this, he was prematurely laying claim to the inheritance that would be his eventually. It was similar to the parable of the prodigal son. Remember his son demanding his inheritance and essentially said, I want what would be mine if you were dead. Essentially saying that. That's what it was by him sleeping with her. It was highly dishonorable. And Jacob's seeming non-response laid more seed for the events of Joseph's life and further family dysfunction. But through it all, through the future pain of losing his beloved Joseph and Benjamin and facing extinction due to famine, God was providing a way. Jacob, like us, was certainly learning that it takes the whole of our life to give the whole of our life to God.